I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we complete the Gospels. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, Luke chapter 24, verses 35 to 53, and John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19, down through chapter 21, the end of the chapter, verse 25. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are. The crucifixion has taken place. The date now is Nisan 17. It's the Sunday after the crucifixion of Jesus. First of all, Jesus appears to the apostles. We read this in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 35 down through 43, and John chapter 20, verses 19 to 24. First, Mark 16, 14. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, Luke records several verses on this subject. Luke 24, beginning with verse 35. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So here we are. It's still Sunday, Resurrection Day. And the disciples get a visit from those guys who had seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus back in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 34. While they're speaking to the disciples, Jesus himself appears before them. Both John and Luke identify this appearance as having taken place on the evening of the resurrection, but they each cover different aspects of the meeting. Mark himself just dedicates one verse to this appearance in Mark chapter 16, verse 14. He points out that they were rebuked by Jesus because of a lack of belief regarding his resurrection prior to this personal appearance before them. Luke records the skepticism of the disciples and the fact that Jesus used the visuals of his pierced and healed hands, by the way, and feet as evidence that he was indeed Jesus himself. 
Mark reports in verse 14 that Jesus rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because of their failure to immediately believe that he had been resurrected. We saw in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, that the two women were told to instruct the disciples to go meet Jesus in Galilee. Well, they didn't go. They remained in the Jerusalem area instead. Yeah, but is this really Jesus bodily resurrected, or is it just a Jesus spirit? Luke wants to make certain this question is answered in verses 41 through 43 of his account. Jesus ate with them, and spirits don't eat, but the bodily resurrected Jesus does eat. Incidentally, the twelve had been the designation used in the gospel accounts to differentiate between the appointed apostles of Jesus and the other disciples of Jesus, which would have been a much larger number. It's interesting that the gospel accounts only refer to this group as apostles eight times, and I've listed those eight times in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, and six of those times are by Luke himself. We see the twelve clearly identified as apostles in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, when it says this, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. However, the apostles are most frequently referred to as the twelve, as is the case here in John chapter 20, verse 24. Likewise, after the departure of Judas, they were known as, well, do you want to take a guess? They were known as the eleven, as seen in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, Mark 16, 14, and Luke 24, verses 9 and 33. While this body of men were now known as the eleven, we see in John's account that Thomas was not actually present as a member of the eleven in John chapter 20, verse 24. As a matter of fact, it would be another week in John chapter 20, verse 26, before Thomas would actually see Jesus. Therefore, while it is reported by Mark that Jesus appeared on Resurrection Day to the eleven, that term is used to describe this particular body of disciples. Thomas missed this meeting of the eleven on this particular occasion. Two verses in John's passage particularly stand out. John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. In these verses, Jesus seems to give something special to his apostles. Bible scholars have debated through the years exactly what it means. I try not to read too much into these verses. First of all, it would appear that Jesus is blessing his disciples with a dose of the Holy Spirit's guidance to hold them over until the day of Pentecost, seven weeks to the day away. After the day of Pentecost, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer at salvation. Look at the notes on Acts chapter 2 for more details on that. Secondly, Jesus says this in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now keep in mind, these are specific instructions to the apostles. The same Greek word for remit there is usually translated forgive, it's aphiemi, and the Greek word for retain there is krateo. It means to continue in the same state. Obviously, he's charging them with spreading the salvation message here in this passage, having witnessed the resurrected Jesus in person. It's impossible to conclusively read any more into these words of Jesus than that. By the time the Feast of Pentecost is complete, it'll be clear to the apostles what is to be their mission. In John chapter 20, verses 25 to 31, John states the reason why he wrote his gospel. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, 
Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. And reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing." And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, since Thomas apparently had left early on the resurrection day when Jesus appeared back in John chapter 20, verse 24, after being told about it, he expressed doubt about Jesus' appearance. Mark and Luke clearly indicate that the apostles were present when the two Emmaus witnesses showed up, though we had seen that Thomas was not present when Jesus appeared on that resurrection day. Having missed the visible proof of Jesus' identity, which the other disciples viewed, his pierced and scarred hands and feet, Thomas wants to go one better. He remembers the piercing of the side of Jesus with the spear. He wants to see that wound also. Well, Thomas, here we are. Eight days have passed since the resurrection, and the disciples are gathered again. Jesus appears and affords Thomas the opportunity to confirm Jesus' identity. Jesus then declares in John chapter 20, verse 29, "'Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed.' Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now understand, salvation is by faith. Jesus blesses those who will come to him by faith, which, by the way, is how all of us come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. Then John declares his purpose for writing this gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now keep in mind, Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah. Then in chapter 21, we have a big-time lesson for Peter. Verse 1, After these things Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. 
Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, one hundred and fifty-three, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish." This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Jesus appears to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias after an indefinite lapse of time. This is another name for the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Interestingly enough, Peter decides to go fishing. This is not sport or hobby fishing, but rather big-time fishing for profit with nets and so forth. How could the disciples who went with Peter fish at a time like this? Obviously, they did it for livelihood. There was no church or group to support them otherwise, as would be the case later. Special attention is given to Peter on this day by Jesus. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, when Jesus gave special authority to Peter. Jesus seems to be building on that authority right here. This occasion starts out with their return from the fishing expedition having only caught the fish made possible by the appearance of Jesus. When they arrive to shore, Jesus has already prepared a meal for them, fish, of course. Then begins the object lesson. Jesus asked Peter in verse 15, Do you love me more than these? That's a reference to Peter's declaration before the crucifixion in Mark chapter 14, verse 31, when he said, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Ultimately, incidentally, all the disciples fled at the crucifixion. However, Peter had verbally set himself apart that day from the other disciples with his adamant declaration, and Jesus is now coming to deal with that declaration and subsequent denial. Keep in mind, John was present on this occasion. The Greek words used in this passage offer some precision regarding this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. The Greek word Jesus uses for love there means sacrifice in verse 15. It's the Greek word agapao. It's also used in verse 16. Those two questions strike at the essence of Peter's pre-crucifixion declaration. However, in both instances, in verses 15 and 16, Peter's response to Jesus' questions is characterized with a different Greek word for love, which means natural affection. That Greek word is phileo, rather than the word for sacrifice, agapao. It would appear that Peter completely understands the point that when he said prior to the crucifixion that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, meaning to die with Jesus, and then failed to do so, it would seem empty to make a similar declaration now. Actions do speak louder than words. When Jesus asked the question the third time in verse 17, 
He also is quoted by John as referring to natural affection. He uses the word that third time, phileo, rather than sacrifice, agapao. Peter again answers the question, declaring his love, phileo, for Jesus. Now, my opinion about this verbal exchange is that Peter did not want to be guilty of once again overstating his love for Jesus in the face of his previous denial. I think that's why Peter makes the statement in verse 17 when he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he uses the word phileo again, means natural affection. It was Jesus who correctly prophesied what Peter would do prior to the crucifixion. And Peter realizes that Jesus knows exactly what he'll do in the future when circumstances arise. Jesus then commands Peter to feed my sheep. It would appear that Jesus is restating the authority that he gave to Peter back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Incidentally, Peter's boldness from the day of Pentecost to the end of his life demonstrates that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Jesus prophesies the death of Peter in verses 18 and 19. This serves as a confirmation to Peter that Jesus believes Peter will serve him to the death this time. What about the Apostle John? Let's read about him in verses 20 through 25. Verse 20 of chapter 21. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written Amen. Well, these are curious verses. John, the apostle and author, comments on an exchange between Peter and Jesus and the subsequent misunderstanding that occurred. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in verses 20 and 24. John's careful to make clear that the subsequent belief among the followers of Jesus that John would not suffer death, well, that was just a misunderstanding of this conversation between Peter and Jesus. And finally, we see the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20, and Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. First, let's read Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, Luke's account is found in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover." 
So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And finally, Luke, in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, it takes reading all three passages to get a full picture of this commission from Jesus, along with, by the way, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was spoken at the same time. Matthew sticks with the essence of the commission, command and authority to preach the gospel to the world. Mark chooses to include some empowerment comments. Luke wants to add perspective to the comments. As a matter of fact, pay particular attention to Luke 24:44, which says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. That's, by the way, per Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Luke wants to remove any doubt from the minds of his readers regarding the messianic fulfillment of Jesus. Peter latches on to this in his message of Acts chapter 3 when he refers to Moses' prophecy regarding the Messiah. He does so in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Moreover, it's Luke who quotes Jesus as giving to the disciples their immediate task at hand of waiting in Jerusalem. And then he says, "...until you are endued with power from on high." As it happens, this turns out to take place on the day of Pentecost with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. While Mark and Luke give a brief account of Jesus' ascension into heaven in these verses, Luke records considerably more detail of this day in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 overlaps the events of these verses. Mark's account here merits some additional explanation. I recognize that it's popular even among conservative commentators to explain away Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20, based upon issues of textual criticism. I myself am just not comfortable with the notion that this portion of Scripture can be discounted based upon its omission from two Alexandrian manuscripts, while a host of extant manuscripts support the passage's inclusion. I accept this passage as it is written. Mark's specifications are very similar to those reported back in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. That's when the 70 were sent out on their missionary trip. It should not be troubling to us that Jesus included similar instructions here as he was issuing what has become known as the Great Commission. As a matter of fact, we do see this level of protection against harm on behalf of the 11 apostles throughout their efforts in the book of Acts, along with the great authority given to them. Some have used Mark's statements regarding baptizing in verse 16 to formulate an entire doctrine regarding believers' baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
They insist, based upon this verse, that one is saved only after water baptism is complete. This ill-founded doctrine is often referred to as baptismal regeneration. It's unwise to draw a single verse out of the Scripture upon which to build a doctrine, especially in light of the fact that baptism is dealt with in so many other passages of Scripture. We see in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14, through 14, that water baptism is a picture of what has taken place in a person's life at salvation. The actual baptism at salvation is that of being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13. Another verse often cited by those who teach the unscriptural doctrine of baptismal regeneration is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. In reading that passage and Peter's invitation on the day of Pentecost, it's obvious that immediate baptism that day was the only logistically acceptable means whereby the shoulder-to-shoulder crowd of thousands could step out and be counted for Christ. In reality, salvation, it's a heart condition. At salvation, one becomes a believer by being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. This transaction is completely supernatural and instantaneous. Any outward physical attempt, like water baptism, to complete this transaction, well, that adds a component of works to the salvation process, and that is scripturally unacceptable. Paul states it concisely in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, when he says this, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now listen closely. He continues by saying, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now to insist that something other than supernatural saving faith is required to complete the salvation transaction, well, that invalidates the work of the Holy Spirit. It's clear, salvation is completely a spiritual transaction between man and God. No outward act can possibly be necessary to validate salvation. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.